Did you guys just hear our dog give the biggest sigh in the whole entire world? She wanted to make her presence known. She mm. is here. Um, hey guys. Hello. Hey. Welcome to this week's episode of the 13th Floor. I'm Cece. I'm Alex. I'm James. And today we are talking about deals with the devil. Mm. Running mm. with the devil. <laughs> a topic that makes me very uncomfortable. Ooga, but ooga. this was thrown into the vase by our lovely listener, Alex R. So, Alex, thank you so much for submitting this topic to us. Alex, you're my favorite because your name is the same. Alex really likes your name. <laughs> and you guys spell it the same way. I wonder if he's in Alexander, though. Alex R., you'll have to let us know. Are you an Alexander or an Alex? Because Alex is just Alex. All right, don't betray me about <laughs> being an Alexander. It's like the ultimate betrayal. <laughs> well, you know what? Alex could also be a girl. So, did you oh, ever think about that? Good point. Very could good be an point. Alexandra. Known very mm-hmm. known several Alex girls. <laughs> Anyways, James, how have you been? Been good. How about you guys? We've been good. I just finished up a sewing class, which has been really nice. Mm. Yay! I wanted to learn how to sew clothes for Gwen, and then the baby, but. The last project I made was a pair of PJ pants, and they're pretty cute. I'm wearing them right now, are Alex. Are Alex. they comfortable, though? They are comfortable. They look good. They're making my belly itchy just because of the fabric they're made of, but oh. you know what? I love them, and if there's anybody who's interested in sewing out there, you guys, go find a class. It's really fun. It's fun stuff. You made all kinds of cool stuff. I did. I made... Gwen a bag, I made a new makeup pouch, and then I made a pillow, which Alex is sitting next to right now. You guys can't see it, but it's cute. So, anyways, the whole, I mean, other than wanting to be able to sew clothes for Gwen, but part of the reason I wanted to do it, James, was when we had our discussion about just apocalypse scenarios and how you should have a skill. Mm. And I was like, sewing would probably be a good one to have, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're wanting to use a machine, though, right? I can hand sew, though. Okay. I made Gwen. Today, Gwen dressed up as Winnie the Pooh Bear at school, and I made a little honey pot for her. Did I send you a picture of uh, that, James? No, you didn't. I'll send you a picture of her dressed up as Winnie the Pooh. We got a text message at, like, 7 o'clock last night saying, hey, tomorrow's book character dress-up day. And I was like, well, shoot, I don't have anything to dress her up as. So I got a little red shirt, and I cut cut it off right above the belly button and I put her in a yellow shirt and pants mm. and made her a honey pot. She was Winnie the Pooh Bear. She was adorable. I asked her who she was when I got to school today and she said, I'm honey pot. <laughs> and I said, you are Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> Anyways. Oh, well. She um, loved that honey pot. She had to show it to everybody. Yes. Oh, uh, good deal. And I hand sewed it. It's cute. We'll put a picture awesome. on, her, on her Instagram of the honey pot. <laughs> um, anyways, I think it's time for some hearty hellos, right? Let's do it. Okay, you guys. Today we're going to say hello to everybody in Western Australia. Oh, oi, mate. Uh, hi, Western Australia. <laughs> and sorry, thank Australia. you for tuning in. I'm sorry, all of Australia. And then we also want to say hello to everybody in the Bahamas. Uh, and then <laughs> here in the States, we are going to say hello to everybody in Oklahoma. Mm. So, mm. yeah. What's up, Oklahoma? Um, 
James, I think yeah. that I have an icebreaker today. Ooh. Let's hear it. I had it, and then I said that, and now it's like it's just escaped from my brain. It's more so generic, just because I don't really want you to ask a question about like because I can just imagine you're saying, "What would yeah. you trade?" Yeah, no. I knew that's that's why you wanted to have one today. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I am not even going to uh, fathom that because I don't like the idea. So instead, if you had to pay your bill, would you pay your gas or your electric? <laughs> oh my gosh! I'm kidding. No it's a joke, Alex. My good lord. No, I think that I am going to ask if you could develop a new skill. What skill would it be, and why? Oh, if I could develop like the ultimate time management skill. Oh my gosh. That'd be awesome. That's what you want to do? Well, guess what? That's not you that's achievable, babe. You can do it. <sighs> it's exhausting thinking about it. Yeah, Alex is I'm gonna wait and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Procrastination station over here. Alex is a night owl. He stays up until like two in the morning and then he can't get up in the morning. And so he has some trouble with time. It's not just that, but it's like, golly, I feel like I'm like I can be effective, but at times I'm just like mm. at work and I'm like, what did I do for two hours? I got you. Man, Atomic Habits, man. I highly recommend that book. It's great. Okay. I'm going to put it on my list. James, what about you? What would be your professional skill? Um, something I've always wanted to be able to do that I have no inkling on how to do at all is building stuff. Like building I would love stuff. to. Yeah, I would love to be able to like just build like a little cabin or something to that effect. Just building things. I can't even make a spice rack. I never had a shop class. I don't know how that works. Only thing I've ever built is a beehive, <laughs> and that was hard. It was so hard. It was so hard. Well, that's something that you've built. So you've got some building skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one thing that I wanted to do because I've always dreamt of like making my own dining room table. I don't know why. That's always been a goal of mine. But number one, Woodworking classes are hard to find. Like, yeah, there are not many people that teach that skill out there. Yeah, and I've then, looked for smithing classes, but that's hard too. Yeah, it's very hard. Alex almost got me a glass blowing class for Christmas, but Ooh. I was like, I don't know if I want to be in a uh, super hot location while I'm pregnant. Well, so. you did you did uh, sewing instead? Yeah, though. I chose sewing instead. So. That's really cool, though. Yeah, it is really cool, but also I'm terrified of splinters. So now that you know how to sew, what's yours? Uh, outside of sewing, mine, I would absolutely adore to be able to write code. Mm. But I feel like knowing how to program and write code is basically like another language. Mm. Yeah, it kind of is. I, I got a book recommendation for you. It's funny, both these books, I got Atomic Habits on my desk and I got uh, Coding for Dummies on my desk. Cool. Coding for Dummies. James, are you calling me a dummy? I knew you were going to say that. dare you? But (laughs) also, I get it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if I really wanted a fun skill, like drawing. Yeah. I'd love to be good Mm -hmm. at drawing. But I think with my time management, maybe I could become good at drawing. You could take (laughs) the time to learn how to draw. Ooh, Atomic (laughs) Habits is on Kindle Unlimited. Alex has it now. By James Clear. Thank you for the recommendation, James. And dear listener, if you have any skills that you want to learn, just let James know. He's got a book recommendation for everything. (laughs) There we go. 
Um, that's one of his special skills. Okay, you guys. Wait, hang on real quick. I got to oh. ask him a question on the oh. air. Okay. Atomic habits. Is it colon an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones? That's the one. Okay. Apparently, there's another one called Ato- the atomic habits rich people develop that makes them successful. But I think this is I by a different make- person trying to glean off of James Clear's work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. Alex. (laughs) Okay. I think that now it's time for us to hop on into the true topic of the night. The one that Alex R. wants us to discuss, and that is deals with the devil. Another topic that makes me incredibly uncomfortable. So I want to go first just to get it out of the way. How does that sound? Hmm? Or should Alex go first? Since you're talking about Faust. Yeah. Yeah, Maybe the, I should the, go first. Yeah, I'll let you go. Al, Alex is smiling ear to ear right now, James. <laughs> you know me. I love going first. All right. Get it done. Yeah, I'm going to go first. And some of y'all might already know why. Some of y'all may not have heard this phrase. But, you know, a common phrase when referencing like a deal with the devil or just a deal that is made with, uh, it's going to have bad consequences at the end with a bad entity. Sometimes we'll say like a, a Faustian agreement. Yay. Or a Faustian deal. I had to write a Faustian-themed story when I was in high school. Oh, really? Yeah. That's cool. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, uh, I really wanted to know why we called it that. And so I figured, like, you know, for this deals with the devil, I was like, I'll, I'll go back to the origin uh, <laughs> of us using Faust. Well, as you would expect, it involves a man named Faust, a Johan... Jorg, I want to say Jorg, G-E-O-R-G, no E. Jorg. Jorg? Johan Jorg Faust, why not? And he was born somewhere between 1466 and 1480. Really? Yeah, so this guy's intro into the world is like pretty disputed. There's a, the details are pretty fuzzy around it. A lot of it's been muddied up because of the legend. You know, th- this again, this isn't the only detail that's a little muddy. His first name is actually debatable. Some people think it's Johan. Some people think it's Jorg. Jorg. Um, and it's also possible that he was born in two different cities. And the, the, the reason some people think that these details are weird is because there may have been two people at the exact same time doing similar things. Johan, there's a magician named Johan and a uh, magician named Jorg doing similar stuff at the exact same time. Um, Copycat. Supposedly. So it could lead to a little bit of the, the mix-ups, especially early on. Now, in the year 1506, there is a record of Faust performing tricks and reading horoscopes. And over the next 30 years... There's records of this man that spanned throughout southern Germany. And he was he was a man of many talents. You know, not only did he perform magic, but he was a physician, philosopher, alchemist, and an astrologer. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. He, he did a lot of things. And as you would expect from someone uh, doing a lot of this stuff at that time, the church was not happy with his dealings and condemned him as a blasphemer and in league with the devil. Now, that's probably not too much of a stretch because this man frequently bragged that he was easily able to reproduce the miracles of Christ. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> definitely a blasphemer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now I am pretty ignorant of this time period. So I am going to read off a couple names that have zero significance to me. 
I think they have zero significance to everyone, but maybe they're big maybe they're big sticks of the era. Okay. James, you let me know if you know. <laughs> Johan Tithemus. Tithemius. <laughs> oh that guy. Yeah. Everyone's favorite Johan. Or maybe their other favorite Johan, Johan Birdung. That's right, Bird Dung. Bird Dung? Yeah. Okay. Um, so <laughs> uh, Tithemius had written a letter to Bird Dung on August 20th, night, uh, 1507, warning that Johann Faust, three Johans, <laughs> uh, who was a trickster and a froster, so he's warning him about this guy who he thinks is pretty shady. And when he said, uh, he said uh, he was the one that actually reported that Johan was reproducing the miracles of Christ, or at least claiming that's what that's what he had. And he also said that Faust had actually received a teaching position in which he um, sodomized some of the kids at his school. Hmm. Um, Or boys at his school. I, I wasn't able to find the age of the school, but yeah, so not great. And mm-hmm. avoided punishment by fleeing the area. Honestly, I kind of read what this man wrote to the other man as kind of gossip. This is what I felt like. The vibe mm-hmm. of his letter was like, I hate this guy. He did this, this, this. So I don't know how true a lot of it is. Now, an encounter in 1513 had a man named Con- uh, Con- Conrad encounter him and heard him boasting about, you know, being... <laughs> well, foolish and well, I guess boisterous about what he could do, all the things that he's amazing at. And then in fifteen twenty, he apparently did a horoscope for a bishop and was actually paid a small sum. So I thought it was pretty weird that he would do that for a bishop. Um mm. but so there's a few of these little chronicles of pieces of evidence that this man existed. Well now, it finally jogged my memory. You know, I quote Paracelsus all the time. And uh, Johann Trithemius was Paracelsus' teacher. Just oh, put two, two together. Anyway, wait, wait, who who was his teacher? Johann Trithemius. Oh, okay. Yeah, so he, he is a day. Paracelsus, yeah. Oh, okay. So they are big people. Okay. I had a yeah, feeling he, he they were. Heinrich Agrippa, too, but, you know, I mean, who cares about him when you got Paracelsus? Yeah, no kidding. Okay, so cool. So, um, sorry. <laughs> when it when it bubbled up, I was like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> that that's a good fact to know. All right. So he has this big chronicle or small chronicle of his existence. Now, something interesting that might dispel the notion of what I thought was maybe gossip that I mentioned earlier is that he was trying to travel to uh, Nuremberg and was turned away. With uh, by a junior mayor, and he had this note about him. He said, "Deny passage to the great negromancer, which is black magic, and sodomite <laughs> Doctor Faustus." Uh, and sounds like uh, he said, uh, said "Yeah, so sodomite Doctor Faustus." So this is like written proof that someone at least considered him these things. Um, so it sounds like he maybe is a bad cat, but then the weird thing is, as time goes on, history starts to look at him a bit more favorably. You know, he starts getting called a respect, a respectable astrologer. And one person even said that he is, he is a person of great medical knowledge. 
And then the last recording of his existence, really, while he was alive, and this is kind of where maybe some of his infamy really became legendary, was he he told a chaplain uh, in a prison that Faust was in prison, and a chaplain came by and he told him, he said, I will show you how to remove the hair from your face without using a razor. If you get me some wine. So the guy went and got him some wine. And Faust gives him a bit of arsenic to put on his face. Well, to to remove the hair. Well, it worked. It did remove the hair off his face. The problem is it also removed the flesh from his face as well. I was going to say, arsenic's not a great idea. Yeah. So, you know, this man is pretty horribly injured. Um... (laughs) So that kind of led to some, uh, probably the eventual legend as we know it. Now, he did get out of prison somehow after that. And now allegedly he died in 1940, maybe 41, in a alchemical explosion. So he's, he's working with chemicals, all this stuff, and just a huge explosion. And it just completely mutilates his body. Now, a lot of people claimed that, I guess he was so horribly mangled that it looked as though the devil's hand had come to collect him in person is <laughs> what they described it looking like. Now this may be part of what spurred the legend of him working with the devil. Um, other than the blasphemous bolstering and his trick <laughs> in the prison, but really the whole legend, and we've seen this before, uh, was kind of created by somebody after his death. Uh, Story of Von D. Johann Faustin was a book uh, that was printed by Johann Spies in 1587, in which he leans into like all of the sins of the man. Uh, over and then over the years, this thing gets reprinted and changed. So he goes from in the book being this kind of goofy character to in these newer ones all the way up until really the 18th century where suddenly he's this guy in the pursuit of knowledge and uh, he really is dabbling in the magical arts and he goes into the woods and conjures a devil and, you know, asks for knowledge and he meets uh, Mephistopheles and enters into this pact with him for 24 years as the story goes. And at the end of which, well, he kind of dies like he does a little bit in real life. It's a bit more graphic. Well, it's not really a bit more graphic, but it's pretty brutal. His blood and brains are on the floor. His eyes are on the ground, and his body is is in the courtyard when they find it. And this was all popularized in the 18th century. This wasn't part of the original story. So we kind of see... We see this original history of 1587 that's written almost rewriting this man's life to the point that we don't quite know all the facts about it. Yeah. And also we, we culturally played culturally with. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go for no, it. No, you're, you're fine. I mean, and then, and then culturally the meaning of his entire existence kind of completely changes. Hmm. So a Faustian deal isn't really accurate, but it is in terms of a pop, pop culture book, essentially. Hmm. Yeah. So it's more Funny. of a pop culture reference than a real life reference. We've sort of played telephone with that trope for so long that you see it in other things that are in many ways innocuous. You know, there's so many deal with the devil stories 
like there's a Futurama reference, yeah. uh, 1967 movie Bedazzled with Dudley Moore. Good movie, but I prefer the 2000 iteration with uh, Brendan Fraser. If you've not seen that, it's just Damnation of Faust, but it's a comedy. I haven't seen it. What's it called? Uh, Bedazzled. Oh, yeah. <laughs> with, uh, I, don't know, I can't remember her name, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, neither. She was like such a big deal, and then she just sort of wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think that... I'm going to go next. Okay. So James can round us off. Okay. Elizabeth Hurley. Had to look her up. Elizabeth Hurley from Austin Powers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Listen, uh, it's my turn. (laughs) Yes, yes, ma'am. Got my research today from blogs.transparent.com from a writer named Hulda. And then also... Reddit. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I dug deep, y'all. Yeah, no kidding. Mm. You never go on to Reddit, too, which is kind of funny, too. Yeah, no. There's the person that I'm talking about, there was some information, but not a lot of information. And the thing that surprised me is because this guy that I'm talking about predates your guy, Alex. Oh, interesting. Faust. So, okay. Yeah. So, Muffins, today I'm going to transport us to Iceland. Where a man, a real man, named Seamunder Froy, and that is per pronouncekiwi.com. Uh, his name is Icelandic. It has the Icelandic alphabet in it, so I didn't know exactly how to pronounce some of the letters. So if I am saying that wrong, please forgive me, all of you beautiful Icelandic listeners. Um, but Seamunder Froy, a.k.a. Seamund the Wise, which is what Froy mm. means. And I've also kind of heard it pronounced uh, Freudy or something like that. But he was a real person who has become a bit of a folk legend over the centuries because he is said to have outsmarted the devil himself on multiple occasions. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he was a priest and a scholar. He's a very clever dude. Supposedly very, very nice man who was born in 1056. So long time ago. And he studied abroad. He was well-known for his written works, which have since been lost to the ages, but they have been sourced by later authors, so they likely existed at one point, right? But over time, Seamunder became a bit of a character, and there were lots of stories circulating about him, and he just kind of became this kind of celebrity. Everyone was like, oh, did you hear about Seamund? He sold, uh, Seamund, he sold his soul to the devil and outwitted him at the last minute. Oh. oh by the way, looking up the name, it's uh, Frothy. Okay. That's how you pronounce it. So I just happen to know that that's what that symbol means. There's there's Frothy and there's Frothy. And they're two different symbols, and that one's Frothy. Okay, Frothy. So I'm gonna tell you some of these stories about Seamund. So Seamunder. <laughs> I'm talking about Seamunder. Um, yeah, this is it. this is the thing. Okay, several of these stories take place at the Black School, which is a school where people will go to learn about the dark arts. It has an Icelandic name that I could not also pronounce, but there were lots of rules surrounding the school. For example, above the entrance of the school, it was supposedly written, quote, you may come in, your soul is lost. And the dean of the school is said to be the devil. Mm. Yes. So it's like if you're going in, you want to go learn the dark arts, you are making a deal with the devil to be there. So 
Beats the pants off Dumbledore, I'll tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Same under. He went in, you could only study, because there were lots of rules, you could only study for three years at the school, and you stayed. if you stayed past that three years, you'd be in big trouble, your soul would be gone. But when it came time to leave, all the students had to leave at the same time, and if you were the last one left, then the devil would keep you. Hmm. And that supposedly happened to Seamunder on multiple occasions. He was the last one left behind. And one story I read claimed that the devil told him that if he could successfully hide for three days from, from him, he would spare his soul. And somehow Seamander was able to do it. That's one heck of a game of hide and seek. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find any information on how he hid though. So that, I don't know. Take that one with, you know, a grain of salt. But another story that I liked a little bit better was that Seamunder would pull his arms into his cloak sleeves and then run through the door. And the devil would try to grab him, but he'd get an empty sleeve. <laughs> so he would slip right out of his cloak mm-hmm. and then go running off into the it's night. Like a, ch- a child's yeah. way to escape. That's something. Well, mm-hmm. it worked for him. He got away. And then the devil was like, darn you. And he followed him around for the rest of his life mm. trying to figure out how to get his soul. This kind of and reminds so, me of the story of Jacqueline. Remember that? Yeah. But lastly, this is my favorite Seamunder story. And it's the most famous one, really. So Seamunder was just enjoying his life studying abroad. But then he realized he needed to go back home to Iceland, which was over, you know, through the sea. So he made a deal with the devil and he said, hey, devil, I need to get, I need to get uh, somewhere. You can have my soul if you can deliver me to Iceland. Turn into a seal, and I will ride you through the ocean. I cannot get wet, though. And when you deliver me to dry land, my soul is yours. So the devil's like, cool, deal. And (laughs) he turns into a seal. They start riding toward Iceland. But guess what happens, you guys? Mm -hmm. As they're about to get to dry land, Seamunder takes a Bible, and he thwacks the devil seal on his head. Knocking him out and like, you know, getting him off balance. So Seamunder falls into the water. Number one, he's wet. He makes his way to land. So the seal does not get him to land dry like they that was the deal. And so technically, his soul was not lost. This is a story you tell to a little Icelandic kid who won't go to bed. That's what this is. (laughs) (laughs) I can see that. Hmm. Well... Seem under his soul was saved per the story. Mm. And this guy is such a folk hero that in Iceland there is actually a statue that was made in 1926 of him smacking a seal on the head with a book, a Bible. And it is Weird. outside the University of Iceland in Rijavik. So, Weird, he's, yeah, he's it's there. I'd never heard of this guy before, but when you were talking about your guy, Alex, I was just surprised that he predated him. Although I think that he was kind of a legend writing-wise and scholarly-wise that, you know, over the years, people might talk you up a little bit. So Yeah, for sure. But anyways, that's Seamunder Freud for <laughs> James. Hmm. Interesting. Right, James. You know, it reminds me of uh, – I'm real curious about the black school because I've heard iterations of that in Slavic folklore. But – uh Anyway, I am talking about Robert Johnson and, to a lesser extent, other rock stars who have allegedly sold their soul to the devil. Because there's an enormous connection between rock and roll 
and the devil. Like it's kind of nuts. But before I get to that, a huge part of that Robert Johnson story involves going to a crossroads. So I thought I would touch up on, on why crossroads are associated with the devil first. And it's a weird thing. Um, there's a few sources on this. First of all, we do know that Hecate, the goddess of, of witches in Greek mythology and, and among other things, uh, she was often given offerings at crossroads. In fact, one of the terms that they had for her, as well as, as for uh, uh, Diana, they would actually call uh, Hecate Trivia or Trivia. And I think Ooh. that's kind of neat. That's where the word comes from, Trivia. Because yeah. if you think about it, oh, we got there via. So via means like a, a road or, or a way to get someplace. And then try, three. It makes perfect sense because a crossroads, you come to a crossroads, you have three options because you're not going to go backwards, right? So we got the word trivia from the, the nickname that the Greeks gave Hecate because of the association with the crossroads. So it makes yeah. kind of some sense that the goddess of witches would, in, in a post-Christianized society, become associated not with a revered deity but with the devil himself. Um, and further, and this is one that I'm very curious about because I can't find any evidence that really, I've, I've actually met people who say that Odin was revered at Crossroads, but I've never seen any source in any literature that's, you know, believable. But in the 11th century, there was actually a homily that talks, it's, it's actually called De Falsus Days, the False Gods. And it's pretty much them just talking about how evil Odin was and how he's a false god and the heathens were, were, uh, idiots for worshiping him and all this stuff. But one of the things they say is that he was offered offerings at crossroads. Now, Ooh. again, to reiterate, I haven't seen anything connecting Odin or Odin to crossroads, but it, it is interesting that this 11th century homily accuses him of just that, that Mercury and Odin were both on our crossroads. It's also interesting because Mercury was often what the, the Romans called Odin because they would, sort of Romanized deities. And when they found out that Odin was like a, a associated with, with death and messages and stuff, they just sort of attributed to him. So eh, loose stuff, but I wanted to give a little background on why crossroads specifically are sort of associated with the devil. Furthermore, there's a liminality. We use, like to use that word a lot uh, with crossroads. You know, it's a place where you're not quite one spot or one quite what, or quite one on another spot. And that's actually why a lot of people in England, for example, were hanged or buried if they were like committed a really grave offense at a crossroads. So that liminality might play a role too. So on topic though, Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson is a fascinating just dude in general. Um, and he is probably most notorious for his association with being the first, not, not just the first rock musician, but the first rock musician to sell or soul of the devil. So like right out the gate, <laughs> rock and roll has this association. So he was born, um, in 1911 and, uh, in, in Hazelhurst, Mississippi. And the guy that his mom was in a relationship with, by which I mean married to, but I don't think he was her, his father, um, actually got run off by a lynch mob because of a dispute with white landowners. So 
again, Mississippi, early 20th century. So they actually ran away to Memphis, and that's where he spent his formative years was in Memphis. And while he was there, he learned a lot of regular stuff, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic type stuff. But this was also where he got exposed, not in Mississippi, which is interesting because we associate the blues with Mississippi, but that's where he really got into the blues. And around this time, he meets a lot of interesting people, both both as a result of living in Memphis, but then also moving back around 1920 to the Delta. So he gets exposed to the blues despite being from Mississippi in Memphis. And then when he moves back to the Delta, now he gets exposed to even more. And I think that's interesting because while albums existed at this time, it would have exposed him to some vastly different styles of the blues because, you know, if you go up several states, there's going to be an enormous difference in how it's played. So he already gets kind of a reputation for playing the harmonica and the jaw harp. And, you know, those are two things that are often associated with the blues, but he wasn't really known for being a guitarist. And as we all know, guitar is very important for the blues and super important for rock and roll, right? So we don't really know when he learned guitar. And a lot of people claim that he was embarrassingly bad at guitar. And then all of a sudden, almost overnight, according to a lot of people, not only did he learn to play well, but he learned to play exceptionally well. He, in fact, learned essentially what became a new style of music, what became rock and roll. The, the, in fact, this overnight occurrence is kind of what you could say was the transition between just the blues and what ultimately became rock music. So that's pretty trippy. And he ended up just sort of wandering around uh, from place to place playing music. And uh, he was actually, according to some people, say that he was so soft-spoken and well-mannered that it's really hard to characterize him. He was just sort of a shy person. And I think that's interesting because I have personally that association with with rock musicians. Most rock musicians, you know, they seem larger than life on stage. Uh, but, you know, as a, a just a regular human being when they're not playing, they're kind of like – it's, it's almost like they become a shadow of themselves when they're not playing. So that's kind of neat. So one thing that we do know is that he actually wrote songs dealing with having made a deal to the devil. So that's kind of a, a red flag. And, uh, and shortly after he saw any success, he ends up dying. So that's another association. He, he died at, get this, 27. For anybody who follows rock music, that is a big deal. So he's the first person to be in the 27 Club. There's an association. A lot of rock musicians over the years have died at 27. A lot. And he was the first. In fact, that was, you may not know this, Alex, but Cowboy Bebop, the reason why Spike has that fateful ending when he's 27 is because of that, that that association. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Rock stars die at 27. A lot of them. I won't even list them because it's so extensive, but yeah, uh, a lot of people think it was due to an aortic dissection, uh, possibly resulting from Marfan syndrome, which is really interesting. He had uh, really long fingers and a bad eye. So 
that could have actually been the the more skeptical explanation. But uh, the legend is that when he was a young man, he really wanted to be a musician and he wasn't any good at playing guitar. So he went to a crossroads near the Dockery Plantation at midnight <laughs> and sold his soul in order to, to become a, a music legend. And he did become a music legend. And incidentally, the, the Faust legend it also involves going to a crossroads at midnight. So there's, there's a, uh, you could even argue, even though you're dealing with a real person, Johnson was a real person, you could argue that pop culture from Faust intersected with the story of this real person and resulted in that. So it's very conceivable. And some people actually argue that it's probably not actually the devil in his songs, but actually Legba, who is uh, a uh, Orisha-type deity in, in African folklore. Now, that's possible. Uh, you know, again, there's a huge, uh, what's a good word for that, syncretism between African folklore and a lot of belief structures in the South. I mean, heck, the, the stuff my family practices involving root work over the, the centuries, uh, that there's a huge connection with African folklore in those respects. So it's possible, but mm, I'm still more inclined. I mean, again, he has a song called Me and the Devil Blues. <laughs> so I don't know about that. But yeah, he used microtonality with his uh, with his singing and that those, those little subtle pitch changes um, had a huge influence on a lot of musicians, tons of musicians. Eric Clapton, for example, who's, in my opinion, one of the best guitarists in the world, um, hugely influenced by, by Johnson's singing and his guitar techniques. I mean, tons of people were influenced by him, including Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin. And speaking of Led Zeppelin, this is the part where I mentioned that there are other rock stars who are often accused of having sold their soul to the devil. And that includes fellow Led Zeppeliner, Jimmy Page. Uh, we've talked about this before, that Jimmy Page flipping bought Crowley's Bolskine house in Scotland, which is weird, and that he had seances, that he engaged in necromancy. And, uh, you know, then there's those weird symbols that they all use for the different players. So a lot of people claimed that Jimmy Page had like his uh, major influence, sold his soul to the devil. So maybe it's, it's super weird. And he was definitely, if he wasn't a Thelemite, if he wasn't, in, in other words, a, a devotee of Crowley's religion, then he was definitely at least experimenting with that sort of stuff. That much is not really up for debate. So, I, I think there's a fun connection there between Led Zeppelin and, and that notion. Some people have accused Alice Cooper. No, Alice Cooper is actually quite religious and would uh, very, very averse to any kind of left-hand path stuff. But one of uh, one one very interesting take is on John Lennon because Lennon actually did study Crowley extensively. In fact, Crowley's on the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Arts Club band, but then again, so is everybody else, it seems. There's like a bazillion <laughs> faces on that cover. Yeah. But Joseph Nisgoda actually said in, in a book called The Lennon Prophecy that uh, he wanted to be more famous than the king of rock and roll. In other words, Robert Johnson. So is there any truth to this? Who flipping knows? I highly doubt it. I think this was just a way to sell a book. Mick Jagger was accused of selling his soul to the devil, and he actually made a comment on it. Um, 
because, you know, again, sympathy for the devil, um, having fake devil tattoos when he performed, having one of his tracks used by the church of Satan. These are all things that kind of, you know, but uh, this is what he had to say about it. <clears throat> I thought it was really odd thing because it was only one song after all. And it was like a whole album with lots of cult songs, you know. So in other words, uh, he didn't uh, ascribe to any of that, at least publicly. And then lastly, the one that surprises me the most is David Bowie. Not because of the accusation, while that is odd, but by the fact that Bowie, in some respects, corroborated the accusation. So, uh, once again, interested in Crowley. Yeah, it almost seems like more people are interested in Crowley than the devil himself, which is fascinating to me on many levels. But uh, he actually paid a tribute to Crowley in Quicksand, a song that he, he had in 1971, and he actually told Rolling Stone in Five years later, in an interview, this is what he said. I won't even try to do an impression of Bowie. Rock has always been the devil's music. I believe rock and roll is dangerous. I feel we're only heralding something darker than ourselves. Hmm. Whoa. Hmm. So there you have it. The connection between deals with the devil and Robert Johnson and to a much greater extent in terms of the ripples that it has with rock and roll music. Cool. Yeah. All right. Cool. That's a heavy topic. Wow. Yeah. Well, is there anything you guys want to add? No, that's a good note to end on. Agreed. Music. Yeah, I get, I get it, Alex. <laughs> music. Oh. Uh, 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 good job, James. Um, Alex, do you want to draw from the vice? Yes. All right, you guys. Next week. From the middle. We are talking center. about, let's see, what Louis, is Alex? Louis snoring. <laughs> UFO sightings, Damn. specifically the Pascagoula incident. And this was submitted yeah. to us by Tanner. I don't know what the Pascagoula incident is. Do you know, James? I don't either. No. I've never heard of it. Interesting. So, you guys, we're talking about UFO sightings next week. Mm. Sounds good. It's been a while. All I know yeah. is the Pascagoula's got to be in the Deep South, just the name. <laughs> Pascagoula. Makes me think of that Squid Billy's episode. <laughs> it ain't the Okeechobee. It's a lack of hatchet. Isn't it in Mississippi? Pascagoula, Mississippi? It's, it's probably Mississippi, Missouri, something like that. Yeah. Huh. All right. Well, you guys, we're going to be talking <laughs> about that next week, I guess. Who does our music? Our music is by Great Cooking. You can find the music on Amazon Music, Spotify, iTunes, anywhere you listen to music. So until next week, you guys, we hope that you can keep, keep it straight. straight.